Welcome back. I know it's been a long time. Sorry for the long wait. I tried to take a vacation that didn't turn out too well, and then I got super sick. I haven't been this sick since I was a little kid with fever dreams, but I'm back on my feet and back to editing and getting this content out to you. This episode is a Patreon request that I received from actually two different uh, members that donate. It's for rare or strange medical diagnoses. Now, we do bust some myths about how rare these things are. First is Turner syndrome, and I'm going to let my guests do the definitions because I can't do it justice. The second is DID, or Dissociative Identity Disorder. I hope you find this episode as fascinating as I did. Both my guests were super cool to talk to and super patient waiting for their interviews to come out. So thank you both. First up, we have Sarah with Turner Syndrome. So, Turner's Syndrome? Mm-hmm. I looked it up online. <laughs> but, okay. But you might give a way better definition than I will give. <laughs> I I hope so. Um, at this point, I should definitely know a lot about it. You know, I still will go online sometimes and, and read up stuff where I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. Or <laughs> There's a lot of, as with anything, there's a lot of medical jargons and whatnot. But I, I guess the simplest way to put it is that you're missing part of a chromosome that determines, like, it mostly deals with, like, your secondary sex characteristics. Mm -hmm. Typically, guy would be XX, a girl would be XY. You kind of have a blank, like, you're an XO is the way to kind of explain it. There is, Turner's deals with girls. There is actually um, a form of it that guys can have called um, gonads, I believe. Mm -hmm. So I don't know a lot about that. It's basically, it's something that's uh, usually diagnosed pretty quickly at, at birth in a lot of cases. It so happens that in my case, I was probably six or seven when that happened. And the reason why it happened, I wasn't really exhibiting. There are some physical characteristics that can be uh, attributed to Turner's. Mm -hmm. um, there can be various physical, um, I'm trying to think like some, they call it like webbing on like the hands okay. and the, the feet or uh, just some certain things that like, I, I didn't have any of those things. But what happened was I had a pediatrician that noticed that I was like consistently falling below the national average height wise. Mm -hmm. And so he just had a thought that okay, well, maybe she could possibly have this or have growth hormone deficiency. Mm -hmm. And so, and I, let me just preface this too by saying I absolutely hated going to the doctor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> no kid likes it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like my, like my mom would literally have to wait until the day of the appointment to tell me. And it would just, you know, was, I, I feel bad for her in hindsight because it was never a pretty thing. What they did was they basically 
they had to like take my blood every 30 minutes for like 13 hours. <laughs> I remember it was just like this really intense thing. But what they were basically wow. doing is um, testing my, my chromosomal karyotypes. Okay. And they did come back and say that I had Turner's and that I had growth hormone deficiency, which actually ended up being a blessing in disguise because one of the characteristics of Turner's is that you can have short stature. My doctor told me, you will never get to be five feet. And I said, okay, (laughs) I wasn't happy about that. Mm -hmm. I started taking the growth hormone and responded to that big time. And long story short, I'm five, six and a half now. So I'm definitely surpassed his, uh, his expectations. But um, basically, uh, I would give myself, well, first, I had hated shots of any kind, but I would have to take a shot every day. And eventually, I learned to give them to myself so that I could go off to summer camps and do stuff like that, where my mom wasn't going to be able to give them to me. And I just wanted to be able to kind of do it on my own. So, you know, that was a pretty big deal for me. So then as I got older, of course, you're getting to like the age of adolescence and all of that. And I grew up in the era of like the, <laughs> you know, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret, Judy Bloom books type of thing. Where like, you know, the, for, for all of my girlfriends, the rite of passage was, you know, when you got your period and that was like a really big, that was like a really big deal. I was always like excited for that change to happen. And yet it never did. And, you know, I was like, okay, so, you know, why isn't this happening? And, um, and I was told that that's, you know, probably has to do with the Turner syndrome and probably there's a lot of girls that would love to be in my, in my position, mm-hmm. um, nowadays, <laughs> cause I, I don't really know anyone that enjoys that whole process, but, um, basically, uh, I guess when I was 18, um, well, and before, before I say that, yeah. Yeah. it did dawn on me at a certain point. Um, I don't know exactly when it was, but I, I do remember having the thought, okay, so if this isn't happening for me, it was like one day it just magically clicked. What about children? Am I going to be able to have a child? Mm-hmm. And then I was just like, I don't think so. And when I turned 18, they did some rather... Uh, extensive testing. Um, They looked at my heart. They looked at, there's a lot of different things that Turner's can affect. And so um, they, like I have thyroid issues and those are kind of attributed to Turner's. So they wanted to check everything out. And they did say, you know, that I had, I had all the equipment, but my body just didn't produce eggs. (laughs) It was kind of like a cosmic joke. Like, okay, well, (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, um, and when you're 18, like I remember being in shock Mm -hmm. and I remember being upset about it, but I mean, none of your friends are having kids yet really for the most part. Like it's something that's so off into the future that it's just kind of like, you know, what do you mean your kids, your friends weren't having kids at 18? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, you know, this, I was actually not to date myself, but I was actually before it was, you know, cool to be on MTV Teen Mom. You know, I mean, it just 16 and it pregnant. Wasn't, <laughs> it just wasn't, you know, the thing. But it just I mean, it was so I, I found out, you know, at a pretty at a pretty early age, but it was just kind of like it didn't mean so much to me. I didn't know then how hard it would be growing up and like you know both I have two younger sisters I'm the oldest of two sisters and they both have children and when the youngest one um had hers and I just remember thinking like and I felt so bad because it's like I'm at the hospital and I'm all excited to like you know meet my meet my nephew and it's just kind of like I'm sitting there feeling that but also feeling the sensation of like I'm never going to have this experience. And they're like a part of this mom's club that, you know, I'm not going to be a part of. And that was, that was really, uh, really kind of difficult. Also, I mean, and people would say, oh, well, you know, I mean, you could have an egg donor, you could, you know, do this, do that. Even if you had an egg donor, it's not your biological child. Like, and I, I absolutely love the idea of adoption and I have heard so many wonderful adoption stories and I think it's great and I would never be opposed to that, but it's just still not your biological child. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, I, I love people kind of jump on that bandwagon of like, oh, but you know, and these are usually people that do have their own kids. <laughs> it's sort of a weird thing because I, I know parents that have adopted children, foster children, and are unable to have children on their own, and, and they very much love them. But most of the parents that I see that have adopted children already had kids, and, and it's just they mm-hmm. added to the bunch, and I'm very happy that they've done that. But it's, uh, it's, it is a different thing just in, I guess on paper you could say there isn't much difference, but it's, I don't it even is. know how to say it. Like, <laughs> it's just... And- and, you know, and also to be honest, I mean, I've never really been like a maternal person. So I don't even know, you know, given the choice, if that's something that I would just be like, oh, I can't wait to have kids. But there is something that's kind of um, different about just not having a choice and not having a say in it. Like, OK, it's it's decided. I've pretty much made peace with that at this point because I have nieces and nephews that I love and I have two godsons and I mean I have all that going on one of my biggest concerns was okay so what if I meet someone that he really wants children and this is not something gonna happen here so is that going to cost me a relationship and that was something that I really worried about um like for a long time kind of in my 20s and mid 30s and just but also knowing that okay if that's a deal breaker then they're really not the one for you exactly (laughs) (laughs) and 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 i i've said this to others before and i've I've probably said it on the podcast a few times first second date conversations are do you want to get married do you believe in marriage do you want to have kids like you have to put that stuff up in the front and weed that out real quick because six months into it that's just a nasty breakup (laughs) 
Oh, I, I think so. I, I think the hardest situations I've heard of are my friends that like thought they were on the same page, but then one of them changes their mind down the road about one of those things. And I've had very limited relationships and I, I do wonder if me kind of feeling different with Turner's has been a part of, you know, my self-confidence and my, you know, feeling different. And there's a lot of, well, society for a woman, a lot of your femininity is your ability to have kids. And, you know, it, it is all of those things. And so when you don't, it's, it's just kind of like, okay, you kind of have to realize that you're different. And, mm-hmm. but yet I've walked this line between realizing I'm different but living like I'm completely normal because I don't think about Turner's every day. Mm. I don't describe myself with, hi, I'm Sarah. I have Turner's. Yeah. It's yeah. not ingrained on that level. And it's funny. There's, there's a, there's a support group um, or two or three or more, maybe there's tons. on Facebook. I found them. <laughs> you did? Yes. I was and, looking it all up before we talked. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and you know, to be honest, I was a part of uh, some of those for a little while, but then honestly, it got to be too much for me. It was like every day I'm getting some notification of, do you know that Turner's people deal with this? And do you know that, you know, and it just, it got to the point where I was like, I don't want to know anymore because I just, you know, to me, I'm just living my life. And, you know, this is a part of who I am, which I feel very grateful for. Like on a scale from one to 10, I had a doctor tell me I'm like a nine in terms of like if 10 is the best possible Mm -hmm. scenario you can have as far as um, severity, like having the physical attributes and some of the health problems with Turner's. He said, you're like a nine out of 10. And I remember when I was, I don't know, probably 10 or 11, my mom took me to this uh, Turner's girls retreat thing in Dallas and you would think I would have loved it. <laughs> and there were some things that were good about it, but I actually just ended up hating it because I didn't want to be a part of, I didn't want to feel like a freak. I didn't want to be a part of this group of just, you know, like having something like Define wrong you? with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't I want mean, to be defined by it. Right. And yet at the same time, it's not good to not know other people that Mm. uniquely know exactly what you're going through. And as a grown adult now, there's part of me that so much wants to reach out to, especially like teenage girls with Turner's because adolescence is just hell no matter what. And I want to tell them what feels, you know, just so overwhelming today it's it's gonna be better but I mean it's a process but um and like for me growing up I mean I didn't develop like the other girls did um and I (laughs) I wanted a I wanted a bra so bad I didn't need one but I wanted a bra like so bad it was kind of funny a lot of people aren't really excited about that type of stuff but I was yeah well it goes it goes into the whole femininity it goes into the whole this is what growing up into a woman is and you were 
looking forward to those things. It's just looking forward to growing up, really, I think. It is. It really is. And I did end up when I was 18, right after high school, before I started college, I got implants and that ended up being like a good thing for my self-confidence. It's funny. It's like anybody else. You notice little things about yourself that other people would probably never notice. Mm -hmm. So I would say my biggest characteristic of Turner's is that I have a lot of moles. Like I've got them all over my arms. I've got several on my face. I mean, I put like foundation and powder and like I try to kind of cover it all up every morning and and kind of feel bad that I'm doing that too because, okay, just be who you are and mm-hmm. feel good about that. Yeah. But <laughs> it's been something I've never really liked. I do know that it could really be so much worse, especially in terms of, you know, some of the more serious, not vanity, but serious health stuff like heart issues and liver and kidney issues and but things not, like that. But not ha- being able to have children is pretty serious. I mean, I, I, I'm not a doctor, but I wouldn't have rated you a nine. I would I would have weighed that heavier myself. <laughs> that would then, <laughs> you know... <laughs> lower or higher <laughs> like lower like i would have said it was more severe just because that's that can be a big deal you know it is and i'm i'm not gonna lie yeah. i have i have definitely had my share of pity parties over mm-hmm. the years yeah. and you know and i i hate to say it because that's not really who i am at all but i mean like i've i was in love with this guy and he went off and got married and they had all these kids and it was just like okay <laughs> that will never be me but you get more it's... sleep than he does <laughs> just, just say yeah and and you know and it's funny i mean okay sorry if my sisters ever listen to this they are younger than me but I absolutely look the youngest out of all of them, probably because I'm the one that doesn't have kids. Because yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. I do get um, a little bit more time to rest and freedom to kind of you know do my thing. And I have had a lot of sadness over uh, through the years, but at the same time, infertility in itself is really not a uncommon thing. I mean. True, true. It surprised me, and I forget the statistic, but it's it's something that not that uncommon, mm-hmm. and so it kind of puts that into perspective of okay, well, I'm really not that special, you know. I really <laughs> don't, um, you know, have you know something that it's just so. Yeah. Going back to the Turner's mm-hmm. uh, Facebook, I would love to actually have more people know about it Uh, I remember one time I was kind of horrified because I went to a new doctor and she had no idea what it was and I was like okay you're my MD (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you don't know what it is (laughs) that worried me a little bit and and my hope is just and you've been talking about this that maybe you know someone's educated or maybe someone's listening that has it or knows someone that has it and they kind of learn more about it but I do remember getting so upset because they were doing like a walk for Turner syndrome. And I was like, what? I can understand like, you know, walk for breast cancer and, (laughs) you know, Alzheimer's. And, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about all these things that I just, I don't know. I, I felt really insulted in a way, even though I know the intention was good, but it was like, you're making this out to be like a disability 
<laughs> well, well, here I'll, I'll defend it a little bit here. That it's I had never heard of Turner syndrome before. You wrote in, so raising mm-hmm. awareness about it is a good thing, I would say. And it is there. There are some more, uh, I guess, severe uh, symptoms and cases. So yes, yeah, you gotta put them. But I think with you, you had your pity party. So when you see these groups coming together, you're like, I don't want to be part of this all these people just dwelling on the problem. I want to move forward and get on with my life. That's what I'm hearing. It is. It is. And it's funny because um, I went to many, my rock concert in my twenties and my whole family jokes that I'm deaf now and need a hearing aid or whatever. And so am I. I, my sister sent me this thing about Turner syndrome and hearing loss. And I would have never thought about that, that yeah. there was any correlation I don't want to find out about things that I don't want to start looking for things Mm -hmm. (laughs) and being like, okay, you know, I've got this and I've got that and I better watch out for this and I better watch out for that. I guess normal is relative for everyone, but (laughs) I just want to, you know, feel as normal as I can for me, Uh like, and not be kind of looking at, okay, (laughs) what's, what else is out there that I'm going to need to like prepare for. (laughs) I think it's good to know that these groups are out there, these support groups, these organizations. So if you do need help, you know, you're not alone and they're out there, but if you're doing well, you know, who needs Scientology? You're, you're doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) That, I mean, I, I mean, and I've gone through the whole process of by this, time in life. And so, um, I, there are times, especially when I was younger, that I think I really needed someone to walk me through it and help me with some of those things. And my family was always great, but they, they don't understand. Like there's just certain things that they just can't. My sisters, my mom, it it just won't ever be something that they'll, connect with with a firsthand experience although they've watched me grow up and kind of go through it but I mean again it I would hope that if I had the opportunity to help someone and you know encourage them uh, and I have heard stories about women with turners that have had children and that have you know done some of these things that you know I mean it's it's amazing what medicine and science and all of that can do um, can really, you know, change a lot. One of the interesting things about uh, my Turner's, because uh, I think this is directly related, I am actually colorblind, which is very rare for a girl. And um, I had a biology teacher once that said, oh, well, girls can't be colorblind. And I said, uh, I am. <laughs> and uh, it's, It's very, it's actually very rare for girls, but um, I hope to try out those really cool colorblind glasses that I'm out with now. (laughs) You see the the grandfather who put them on, and then it's a total tear fest. (laughs) Oh, those are really amazing videos, and I just wonder, like, okay, is it going to look like that different? I get my hair dyed red, and people are like, whoa, and it, it looks red to me, but it doesn't look like red and so you know i wonder if when i get these glasses if i'm just gonna be like oh my god 
but like, wait, what have I done? Hold on, hold on. I gotta, I gotta call you out a little bit, Sarah. How do you know what real red looks like? <laughs> See, I. The thing is, I, I really don't. That's the fun game. Is that as soon as you tell someone you're colorblind for like the next thirty minutes, it's oh, what color is this? What color is that? You know, oh, they're God, just how it, annoying. <laughs> <laughs> what color is your shirt? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, thankfully, I don't like you know mix mash things too badly that they, you know. But I mean, um, it's just it becomes like the game of like the next 30 minutes. Well, what does that look like? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's just kind of, it's just kind of fun, but, but, but there's, but there's a lot of different things that you have been affected by this. I mean, you've, you've just rattled off quite a few and as much as you might not have, uh, Oh God, what was some of the descriptions I heard? It was like, uh, puffy hands and feet, larger neck, uh, space, mm-hmm. spaced apart eyes or spaced apart nipples. There was a mm-hmm. lot of barrel chest. Yeah. Barrel like, chested webbing on your, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's, and it, and it always kind of scared me that it was called syndrome because mm-hmm. it was like when I was a kid and I would tell some of my friends about it and they would be like, Oh, like, like down syndrome. Yeah. And that that always bothered me because it was well no it's I, I don't have Down syndrome I know people and I know uh, friends that have children that have Down syndrome and um, and they're all amazing but Turner syndrome is something completely different but I guess because it has that word syndrome in it it's something that I share with close friends and I've had you know two or three guys that I was really close to that. I did, you know, talk in depth about it, but mm-hmm. it is like a little hard to to tell people because you don't want people to look at you differently. Um, I think especially the fact that it affects the secondary sex characteristics. I mean, that's there's definitely a level of embarrassment of that for women, and it's just comfortable <laughs> things to to talk about. So it's kind of like, but. Um, like it was it was kind of funny um and this is, this is just kind of a random but i Love i dated this guy <laughs> in high school my senior year that turned out to be gay oh, <laughs> i didn't see it everybody <laughs> else did <laughs> like i was the last to know <laughs> but um i i hadn't seen him since high school and um, and I did get like the plastic surgery after high school and into college and it had been about two years and we ran into each other somewhere. And then like, he texted me back. He texted me randomly, like 30 minutes later after we'd seen each other and fantastic tatas or something like that. I was just like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> Only a gay man can get away with saying that, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I was like, if you were anybody else, like that would not be okay. But, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of funny. I think, um, I think in some ways, it, I don't know. I, I feel like it, in a way it kind of made me feel a little bit like, an outcast there were times where I kind of in my head put a label on myself of freak which is so wrong and when you're young and you're just you just you know your your self-confidence is so hard to to have a good positive view of yourself and so 
you get hard on yourself when you're a teenager and when you're a young adult. I don't feel that way anymore, but it, it definitely made me kind of, I wasn't the most popular kid in school and I wasn't like, you know, I didn't feel like I just belonged with everyone. But in hindsight, I feel like the really good part about that is that I really connected with a total group of people all across the board. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it, I really just became friends with people in band, choir, drama, cheerleaders, you know, all across. And it kind of, I really based those individual friendships over, you know, just this mainstream, like I'm going to dress like everyone else and look like everyone else. And, and that, that kind of became a really good thing because, you know, when I look back over my life, if I, if I hadn't have really like, I guess adopted that, I mean, you know, I would, I would miss out on a lot of the richness that the so-called being different has has brought me and we're we're all different in our own ways too <laughs> that's what i've also the older i get the more i'm like everybody's got something i mean you you probably listened to my story i wasn't uh the popular kid <laughs> or the uh i don't know the mainstream kind of kid whatever but even you know even the kids that are into sports and stuff they all feel alone and that's something that we all realize later is even that most popular whatever kid in school they they didn't have it all together. We just thought they did. <laughs> oh, most definitely. And and by the way, I I absolutely loved um, that you shared your story. And I just think that there's such a great thing about just sharing something authentically about yourself because you never know who might connect to that. You never know who might feel a little less alone because of that. And, you know, I, at the end of the day, I, I really think that's what it's all about. And my, I mean, I, I love to write and I'd love to write like a best-selling book that would be like, I mean, I do the whole day job thing. And so it's okay. Come on, New York Times bestseller. Where are you? But, um, if I ever was to accomplish that, my purpose would be putting something out there that just, you know, people could connect to and realize like, okay, I'm really not so alone in this human experience. I mean, we may not, may not all experience the same things, but mm-hmm. we do at a core level have more in common than, than we know. And, uh, and so it's just kind of, and I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard sometimes, I think, for anyone, especially in today's world where it's like, you know, TV shows, magazines, movies, print ads, modeling runway shows. I mean, it's like all about like this certain persona and look. And, you know, most of us look in the mirror and like. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not there. That's okay. And finding more to like about yourself than you don't like. I'm sure you can relate to this. It's like some of the people you probably love the most you loved those imperfections about them or what was actually really endearing to you. Not, you know, yeah. not this perfect, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> like, well, and, and when you were talking about being different or seeing yourself as different in high school and, or growing up, I, I was totally relating to that and I don't have any sort of health issue or anything. I just, I mm-hmm. didn't feel like I fit in at all. And, 
I found other kids that didn't fit in either and we formed very strong bonds and friendships and I, I feel they were stronger because we all were in our own little uh, rejected world <laughs> <laughs> and those you know those are usually the bonds that really end up lasting too because um you know it, just the superficial stuff fades but I mean people that can really see you at a core level and know you and accept you. And those are lifelong friends. You know, Turner's has definitely given me the opportunity to really have, you know, some lifelong friends and people I know that get what's unique about me, but don't see me as anything different. Um, and I've also, I mean, I've also had amazing friends that have been like, let me be an egg donor for you and all this stuff, which I mean, like makes me cry. Cause like, they're serious. Like they really want to like, you know, do something like that. And it's like, that's amazing. And I can't tell you what that, what that means. Um, but, uh, it, it definitely, I don't know. I, I think things like that, that you grow up with and become a part of you, really make you a stronger person. Um, They definitely, you know, can, I just hope cause you to be someone that inspires others. And I really love this podcast for the fact that I do feel like you use it as a platform to really help and inspire others, like, and just to connect people in that human experience. And I think that's like a really great thing because you know all you have to do is look around enough and you realize that like you're not so you're not so out there no (laughs) you know in this foreign land you've you've got people that are right there with you we just don't you know talk about things enough and like be open and vulnerable with it enough so well and and everyone that's come on my show with whatever story they have, I don't think any of them say that they're defined by that. All of them are mm-hmm. very much their own person. And they're just telling me a pivotal story of their life, something that was a big deal, but not but not something that they wear on their sleeve every day now. It's It's just, I'm a person and this is what happens to people and this happened to me. So, I, and I like that because... Uh, I do. You know, that's like when you were talking about the the groups and stuff. I I can understand why they might rub you the wrong way a little bit because you don't want to be defined like that. And I don't think anyone that's come on my show is like, this is what defines me. All of them are like, I'm a person and I'm struggling with this or I've overcome that, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I mean, uh, last last year, my mom was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, completely out of the blue, had always been picture of health, never smoked, any of that, complete shock. Um, thank God she is cancer-free now, um, which is amazing what they can really do with some of these um, medicines and immunotherapies and all of that. But I remember in that situation, I was looking up like every lung cancer Alliance resource support group. You know, know, I mean, I was like looking up every, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I wanted to like be involved in it all and know it all and like take it on as a cause. And my mom didn't want like anything to do with it. 
And I was, what do you mean? How, how can you not want to do anything with it? Especially now, you know, you're virtually on the other side of it. You know, don't you want to like, don't you feel like this is like a mission now? You know, and she just, she wanted to focus on health. She wanted to, and it just was not, it was not for her. And, and it, I, so, it sounds like you're a lot like her. and I mean and I and I guess I am because I guess if you really I listened to this really cool American Life podcast a little while ago and there was two patients that they were both terminally ill but they told they told one that they were and they didn't tell the other one that they were and the one they didn't tell you know was just completely like is still alive when they should have died like years ago and they are still going on. And, um, and the, I guess the title of it was called a case for denial. Um, and denial is not always like a good thing, but in, you know, I think it just kind of, you know, if you have that positive mindset and that's where all your, the brain is such an amazing thing. There are people that they want to be like, enveloped with whatever their medical ailment may be they put all their focus and attention and effort into it i have a thyroid that doesn't really work and when i look on these autoimmune thyroid things you would think these people are like how are they getting through the day like it's it sounds like the most miserable thing in the world i have it and i don't even really yeah i get tired sometimes and you know i I have days that I don't feel that great, but I mean, as a whole, like it's not even really a blimp on my radar other than I take thyroid medicine. So, but you read some of these things and it's just like, Oh my God, like (laughs) I, I just can barely get out of bed and I could just, you know, and I just not to discount the legitimacy of going through anything like that. But, and I think there comes a time where maybe you have a choice and, you know, you can, I don't know. I mean, from what I've seen my mom doing this past year, if you can, <laughs> you know, if you can do that, then like, if you can have, be diagnosed with stage four cancer and like six months later be like working out at the gym, you know, showing up 20 year olds, then anything is possible. <laughs> I, I think everyone has their own threshold. Everyone has their own ability and, and limits. Uh, but I did like your the analogy on the This American Life episode because people need hope, and you can't take that away from them. And absolutely, and I think that's what you might be seeing on some of these sites is they're they're giving up hope. They're just not getting the positive reinforcement or the uh, new mindset they need. And hell, we're about the same age. I mean, it's I don't mm-hmm. want to I don't want to get up out of bed in the morning either. <laughs> <laughs> I get tired. Well, <laughs> so. if, if you if you continually look for something to be hard or look at the hard aspects of something, I mean, it's it's always going to be there. And it just seems like the more you put your focus on it, the more prominent it becomes. And I mean, I absolutely can't say I'm perfect and can't say that I, I don't have times where I'm like in a total funk. And, you know, I just and there's a lot of things in my life that I've blamed on Turner's that really, you know, okay, well, it's a nice little card to be able to play, but was it Turner's or was it really, you know, I, I take responsibility for my choices and my actions and my decisions. So, I mean, 
you know, I, it just, it comes a point where like, you know, you can look for it to get worse and you can look for all the downsides and I could be Googling every day about, you know, what I need to be worried about next. I see my doctor regularly and keep up with my checkups and all of that. So, I mean, it's not like I don't take care of myself, but I'm also not going to sit around going like, okay, well, it says people with Turner's can, you know, have, have this liver issue. Okay. Do I, do I have it? Do I, I mean, yeah, I just, I can't live that way. (laughs) No, it's true. And, and you, there's two ways to look at everything in life or there's multiple ways, but there's always the positive and the negative. You know, you can, you can look at it like, Oh, I got a flat tire. Now my whole day is ruined. Or you can just (laughs) say, I got a flat tire, but I got to hang out with, you know, my wife for an hour on the side of the road, <laughs> no, you know, it's just whatever it is. And, exactly. And, and, I got to miss 30 minutes of work. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's just different ways to, to look at things. And I would say I'm actually an ultimate pessimist. I lower my expectations. Every time I leave my house, I expect everything to go wrong. And when it goes right, I'm like, yes. <laughs> and I appreciate it. <laughs> and you know, I, I think the I, world's against is, me and, and I'm it, fighting back. <laughs> so are you always waiting for the for the other shoe to drop? Yeah, I'm 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 but see, even though I think the whole world's against me all the time, I'm like Charlie Sheen, I'm winning. <laughs> so <it's, laughs> right. You know. Right. Um I feel like a true dichotomy of my parents, because you know, my dad He's, he's like one of the most passionate, like hopeful people ever, but he's also just has this like really artsy kind of side to him and he's, he can be very melancholy and I can absolutely get in that zone. And then my mom is just such an optimist and I just think so many times because I'm her daughter, like, you know, I will never just be able to like, there will never come a day where I'll just be able to shut all the blinds put the covers over my head and just be like, hi, just, I'm done. Cause I get to that point and I just have this voice ingrained of me of like, what are you doing? No, this is not a perfect life, but no life is. And, and you never know what so-called hardships or things that happen in life or maybe things that you were born into or born with or any of that, you never know how ultimately they could end up being one of the most amazing things about you. And, you know, and I have to believe that we're all just who we are and the way that we are for a reason with something uniquely to add. And, you know, I just, I think that as we get older and a little bit more to grow into that comfortably and express that comfortably. I look around the world, like, and I see that that's what makes me happy in the world to have that kind of community of people that are, that are doing that, that are telling their stories that are saying I'm not perfect. And because otherwise we would all just have these perfect little plastic Facebook lives of (laughs) we're all so happy and everything is so perfect all the time. Anyone I know, they may not know it about me, but I don't really see anyone I know thinking of me in a negative way for it. If anything, I think people, I think it could actually be something that makes people want to know me more and want to be closer to me and maybe share things of their own. 
Thank you, Sarah. Next up, we have a woman of many names, but she goes by Eleanor for the interview. She strives every day to debunk misinformation and educate people on the reality behind DID. I will be honest, uh, I don't know much about DID besides uh, watching Sybil as a kid or reading <laughs> oh, the <God>. book. Oh, <laughs> God. Yeah. Okay, then you're going to, this is going to be different. <laughs> yeah, um, and, I, and so that's, I'm going to ask you some probably really stupid questions. And, no, great. <laughs> you know, that might be obvious to other people, whereas I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. And secondly, I didn't believe Sybil at all. I didn't think it was real. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. And not to say that I don't believe that this disorder is not real. I just didn't think yeah. the way it was portrayed in Sybil was real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely the movie is not an accurate depiction at all. <laughs> <laughs> cool, that's good. I was on the right track then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my name is Eleanor. Um, I'm from Atlantic, Canada. Very, very small city. More like a town. I think we kind of exaggerate ourselves a little bit. <laughs> I am 23 years old. I have been living independently for 10 years now. Um, so I left home when I was 13. And I'm here to talk to you today about um, my diagnosis, um, mainly of dissociative identity disorder. But I mean, also... PTSD, depression, you know, the comorbidities that come with. How would you define DID to somebody who doesn't quite have a grasp on it? Okay. Imagine you're in a car and you've got a car full of people and say they were like your siblings, like they all grew up in the same environment as you, but they've all had a different way of growing up in that environment mm -hmm. like they've all come up with their own likes dislikes um pet peeves and whatever but someone's always driving the car and so maybe sometimes you're stuck in the back seat when you know you really want to be driving or sometimes you're driving and you're like man i'm tired and i want to pull over like mm -hmm. someone else take a turn <laughs> That's a really interesting way of describing it. I, I just saw that movie Split where they were talking about, a, oh, you know, a God. light or something. And I, I'm like, no, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think that's a good way. But no, it's no. you're you're in a relationship with these other people. You're very familiar with these people and and you're taking turns. Yeah. And I just personally, I want to put out there that I was absolutely against Split. From the moment I saw a trailer, there's actually a YouTube video of me going on a rant about how mm -hmm. awful the trailer was. Yeah. I didn't see the movie. I didn't want to support that in any way. Yeah. No, and I, actually, I, um, the International Society for, for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation mm -hmm. released a statement saying how, um, how much of an impact it's had on treatment and, you know, the mentality of the general population who doesn't, would have no reason to know 
what DID is like. I watched the movie as literal entertainment and did not associate it to anything in reality whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I guess I only give it a pass because I feel Hollywood misrepresents almost everything, (laughs) like whether it be drug use, gunplay, anything and everything. It's all so far out there that I, I guess I could watch it and not get upset with their misbetrayal because I think they, they don't portray anything correctly, but I get why you and others would be like, no, this movie's shit. I don't want to, I don't want to support this. I get it. But saying that, you know, as a horror fan, Psycho remains one of my top five. So (laughs) You can appreciate something for what it is and, and Psycho is a classic and they weren't trying to, I don't think they were really trying to mislead back then. Oh, no, no. It was purely for the the horror. And especially back then when it wasn't even in the DSM at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you made a comment that you moved out when you were 13 years old. Yep. I have some older siblings and I also have a younger sibling. Both of my older siblings were removed um, by social services at some point. And with me, there were many complaints made to social services. However, they weren't doing anything. Um, They weren't stepping in. And so the night in particular that it all happened... My mother and her boyfriend had been fighting downstairs and I was watching So You Think You Can Dance all day. (laughs) Like, you know, they weren't paying any attention to me. So I was literally like eight hours in. And at some point I made myself supper, which was a can of kidney beans. But I had just left it there afterwards. Like I hadn't put it in the dishwasher immediately or rinsed it or whatever. So she came upstairs and got upset with me that it was soaking in the sink. And, you know, I tried to explain to her, you know, I left it out for a little while. It needs to soak before I can put it in the dishwasher. But she was just in a horrible, horrible mood. So she had gone to take a shower and I just took a step outside. I sat on my front porch and just tried to calm myself down. It wasn't just, uh, why is this dish sitting here? It was a, this dish is sitting here because you're useless. You'll never end up doing anything. You know, she was very, very verbally abusive. Mm -hmm. And so I came back inside and she freaked out at me because she said she didn't know where I was, which, I mean, if you were that concerned, why wouldn't you open the front door? But, and, uh, and where was anyway. she the last eight to ten hours when you were downstairs? But yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. At that point, I was just so angry. I was 13 years old. I just went to my room and I turned on my, you know, angry 13 year old music. Yeah. And I will admit it was too loud. And my younger brother was sleeping. So she came in and started yelling at me, you know, obviously it was at another level at this point, um, to turn the music down. And I did. 
not five minutes later, she came back in, told me to turn the music down again. And she said, you're going to wake your brother. And I remember just saying calmly back to her, if anything's going to wake my brother, it's the screaming you're doing right now. (laughs) And that just set her off. And she got me on the ground and started punching my face and my head and going to town. She lost it. Yeah. Um, So by the time I got up, I managed to get out of the house despite her physical attempts to keep me in the house. And I ran to a neighbor. And the neighbor, I'd, I'd run to them before similar circumstances. And so they called the local social services and they told me to go home. So at that point, my neighbor said, screw you. She's not going home. She's staying with us tonight. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be dealt with. Um, So that's it's so it's so ridiculous. You've already had two other siblings removed from the home and you have been physically assaulted but go back home go back to this place that's dangerous and the and abusive and they didn't even like there was no police officer sent out there there was nothing i was just go back home so luckily the next day and i had an amazing amazing teacher in eighth grade like honestly she saved my life that year like i would never have been able to have gotten through it without her. Mm -hmm. So I went to school the next day and, you know, my teacher knew what was going on and, you know, I could tell that the adults were buzzing, trying to figure something out. And I'd been having stomach pains for years at this point and they were severe, like crippling. And so I happened to have an appointment with the pediatrician that day. So my mother came and picked me up and she got a very very stern talking to from my teacher and we went to the pediatrician I guess social services had sent something to them or I have no idea how he figured it out that day he basically told my mother to get out of the room and you know he gave me the space to tell him what was going on Mm -hmm. and so he did what was within his power, and he admitted me to the hospital under the, the idea of me having stomach pains, but he, he did it to, so that I was able to escape. I yeah. mean, it's the community is coming together for you when the, when the state wasn't, <laughs> it seems. Yeah. After um, I was hospitalized, I kind of just couch surfed until I was 16, and then I formally entered the care system. That's just a whole nother saga. But. <laughs> <laughs> but from 13 to 16, you were amongst friends. And I mean, it's not an easy life couch surfing and living, not exactly knowing where you're going to be at. But nothing, nothing horrible happened during that time. You were. No, I, I wasn't in the best of places. The people who would take me in were not the best of people. So I ended up finding a lot about the world 
and how many different flavors of crazy there are. <laughs> I, I just think back to my other interview uh, with the lady that escaped or left the Jehovah's Witness group in Australia, and she mm -hmm. was living on the streets and in different apartments, and she ended up with a gang that was running weapons. <laughs> it's yeah. just, you know, yeah. the worst. I mean, I non-jokingly refer to the first place that I stayed as crazy Christian lady mm -hmm. because she was fanatical. And yeah, it just, it gets weirder from there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. And it sucks because I personally think from five to, you know, 17, these are very important years for structure, for regiment. For, oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. And I mean, it doesn't help that um, I'm autistic. Mm -hmm. So change for me is like terrifies me. It's mm -hmm. really hard to cope with. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely was a struggle. Mm -hmm. So you get into the state's custody, I guess, or care. And yeah. Yeah. So first I was with a foster family. It was a single woman. It really is, it just keeps, the system kept failing me. She was a psychologist, so no one bothered to, you know, how there are certain requirements to become a foster parent. They overlooked all that. They said she's a psychologist, so she must be fine. She doesn't need to do the training. And they just put me with her. She was never abusive to me in any way. She was just weird, really, really weird and very distant. And I don't think she herself was able to reach out in a way to build the relationship. So it just felt like I had a roommate that was decades older than me. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, I was in a group home, um, which was absolutely insane to call that care, I think, is an overstatement. There's a lot of kids and not a lot of staff, and they don't train their staff well enough. So essentially that entire time, I just went in my room and stayed away from the crazy. You know, I just wasn't going to participate in it. I had my own stuff I was dealing with. Yeah. And then I ended up moving out with a lady who worked at the group home and I thought, you know, this is great. I'm 18. I'll have responsibility, but you know, I won't be like on my own, on my own. Hmm. I'll have an adult to help me kind of figure this whole thing out. But unfortunately, uh, within a month that turned abusive and the relationship became sexual and then eventually got violent. Um, and then, Thanks to a very, very dear friend of mine who I have known since I was 13. She was with me one night and she started to get violent. And long story short, it ended with her threatening me with a knife. My room or my um, sorry, she's my roommate now. Mm -hmm. The friend I've had since I was 13. My roommate saved me from that situation. She got me out of there. So I've been living on my own. And then now I live with her. So I've been safe for 
three years now. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Some <Yeah>. stability. <laughs> and I've learned that living by myself is very therapeutic for me. It, mm-hmm. you know, I I was scared of it, but it's definitely been worth it. It it just depends on the person. Uh, I I have a friend who uh, suffers from uh, schizophrenia, and he. Mm-hmm has to have a roommate he has to be around somebody even if he doesn't interact with them whatsoever just somebody being in the other room totally ignoring him (laughs) is enough stability for him to continue functioning totally normally in society he you know he's medicated but he he's very high functioning and very uh stable with this roommate (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's great yeah it's it's totally individual, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think his roommate's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Good thing they don't talk then. Yeah. It's just he's the one that's clinically uh, diagnosed and his roommate isn't. Right. So <laughs> right. What do you do? <laughs> oh, God. What symptoms do you have and when did you start noticing? I knew before I knew. Mm-hmm. And that probably makes no sense. I remember being 16 and talking to a therapist and saying, when I'm with certain people or I do certain things, I'm not, I switch to a different person. Mm -hmm. She said, just jokingly, well, do they have names? And I said, well, no, that would be crazy. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, you're like not letting go all the way because they're not taking you seriously in a way. I think that, and it's actually very, very common for people with uh, DID mm-hmm. to not start being able to realize it and the amnesia barriers break down until you're in a safe place. Ah. So um, it was actually the month that I moved out on my own after I was in that abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I was training for a new job. I realized that I was watching myself have a conversation with my boss and I couldn't, I didn't know what I was going to say, but I kept talking and it was very, very surreal to realize that I'm saying things and obviously my body is still working, but I have, I'm in the back seat. That was when I really knew that, you know, it was more than PTSD. It was more than I had. <laughs> so talking to your boss or doing an interview can be stressful, can be uh, yes. anxiety ridden because you have to be on the ball. You have to engage this very important person who could fire you at any minute. So yeah. you took a step back and somebody else took over. Yeah. I mean, the mind does amazing things when it has to survive um kind of an introduction to my system none of us have memories of feeling whole like our youngest memories we all remember the three of us being around there was birth name um and we called her that because our name was a trigger at that point 13 and abby And so I'm Abby. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. With 
additional traumas. Um, unfortunately, we developed more, I really hate the word alters, but it's the most widely accepted term. So we developed more alters with time. Um, yeah. I've heard people describe protectors as like lead roles and then alters as more sub roles and then the host. Those are the three terms I've heard used. So Okay, yeah. Um so protector would be like a type of role within a system as would host. Um yeah, those are all like roles in the system. Well, we have something that's called polyfragmented dissociative identity disorder. The clinical definition is either a hundred or more alters or alters who have systems themselves, which is, I mean, I can imagine very hard to grasp. Thinking inception right now, I, I just <laughs> a dream within a dream kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely understand that okay. analogy. Yeah, so I guess our protector, per se, um, would be 13. She is, in high school, we were called bitchy. <laughs> um, but she's very assertive. She knows what she wants. And, you know, if she wants something, she's going to get that. Um, is she 13 because she's the one that protected you when you were 13? Um, no, her name was 13 prior to that. I have no idea why she chose that name, to be honest with you. Um, (laughs) I just, you know, you had it out at 13, you moved out. I didn't know if there was any association there or not, but okay, cool. (laughs) Yeah, no, um, that's actually a really interesting point, but I, I'm, I don't think so. Okay. Um, and actually she's 16 years old. All right. So. Cool. Um. Yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to make connections that aren't there. I'll stop. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. So, yeah, she would really be the protector. I guess we don't really have a host. We, there's a small group of us, I guess we call them our fronters, the people who are in front the most, you know, paying attention to what's going on in the world as opposed to kind of taking a back seat and um, going inside, which is another pretty far out concept, I think, probably. Yeah, you know, this, this is the weird thing, is I'm totally following everything you're saying, and I'm grasping it just fine. I didn't know if I was going to or not, because, uh, for instance, back to my, my friend with schizophrenia, he was, he was telling me about hallucinations and delusions he would have. I've mm-hmm. dabbled in psychedelics in my time. I mm-hmm. can wrap my head around a delusion or a hallucination. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do that with a deassociation of oneself. But you, you actually kind of do do that a little bit. You have blackout periods where you're not in your body so I'm, oh, totally. I'm, I'm following. I, I think I'm, I'm yeah. I, I don't think there's anything you've said that's that confusing yet. <laughs> and I mean, it's, I think it's really important to note that um, every single person on this earth has mild dissociation. Mm-hmm. Like 
daydreaming or um, I think they call it highway hypnosis. Like when you drive somewhere that you've driven like a million times and you just don't remember getting from point A to point B. It's auto, um, autopilot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone has mild dissociation. It's just when it takes the severe form is when it becomes, you know, a disorder. Mm-hmm. I know that when I go through a really stressful time, I'll, I'll focus on work and just go into autopilot mode and not focus mm-hmm. on anything else. I'm not saying that I have any issue, but I really do let go of my personal life and just focus on what needs to get accomplished and just block everything else out. So that's sort mm-hmm. of a mild version. The thing with dissociation is that it's, very primal it's very like young children have the ability to do it it's innate in all humans it's just how much you've relied on it as a coping skill Mm. that depends you know where you fall on the dissociation spectrum okay because i mean that's what a lot of uh, mental illnesses or disorders are are a coping mechanism that's gone awry isn't it yeah i mean paranoia you're you're worried about danger so you're always you know looking for it you're always expecting it uh ocd other things are they're coping for something else but it's something you have to manage or try to control because it's taken over yeah absolutely okay get nerdy on you yeah let's do it (laughs) I can describe the different types of dissociative disorders, Mm -hmm. and I am by no means an expert, and really the only thing I know is DID because that's what I've lived. So people on the spectrum who I may or may not mess up the details, I'm sorry. So um, there's something called depersonalization derealization disorder. So that would be um, depersonalization is like feeling like you're in the wrong body or looking in the mirror and feeling like it's not reflecting back what it should be. Or it can make you feel very like foreign in your own body, like you don't have the same um, like sense of your body as you usually would. Mm-hmm. Um, and then derealization, I've kind of always described that as feeling like I'm in a video game and I'm just a character, you know, it isn't real life. Like mm-hmm. um, your surroundings become foreign. And then there's dissociative amnesia with or without fugue. So fugue state is, I don't know if you watched, um, oh, Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he pretended to have a fugue state where he, um, you know, traveled a far distance and, you know, just pretended to not remember it. Yeah. Um, So that's what fugue is. There's also something called other specified dissociative disorder. I believe there are three subtypes. And the first subtype is essentially the same thing as DID, but like they have a system and they have 
you know, alters or whatever, but there's no amnesia. And then the last is unspecified dissociative disorder, which is basically when the doctors are like, okay, we know you're messed up, but we can't pinpoint it exactly. Mm -hmm. So we'll just slap you with this in the meantime. There was one more I was going to ask you about. Uh, I think it's called deassociation fatigue or identity fatigue. But I think it sounds more like the blackout, like when you just go into autopilot mode. Yeah, to be honest, I've never heard of that. Okay. It was just something I randomly looked up when I first called you. So <laughs> I'll have to look into that, yeah. Yeah. So you're just straight DID then? Yes. There are five components of dissociative disorders, and they're amnesia, derealization, depersonalization, um, identity alteration, and identity confusion. And so when you have DID, you have all five of those. So you do have times that you don't remember. Absolutely, yeah. Does it happen a lot? Uh, yeah. Um, it's We tend to call it like losing time or like sometimes it's very short. It could be like 10 seconds and, you know, I'm sitting in the exact same place and I don't necessarily realize that I've lost time okay. and then there are point, times when it's like okay I haven't seen the outside world in six weeks I have no idea what's going on like, you know have you ever been put in harm's way during any of those times loss of time I don't know okay <laughs> I just I it sounds it just seems scary to me if if i just ran off to a bar and I didn't know I was doing it and went home with some random person or something to that effect, you know? I, yeah. Um, I guess I'm just so used to it that um, it doesn't generally freak me out. I mean, there are definitely times that I have been freaked out. Like, sometimes I'll find notes that, you know, I obviously didn't write and they can say some pretty scary stuff. Or um, there have been times where there have been fights about, you know, exactly that. Like, you know, you're spending too much time at the bar. Like, this is a problem. We need to not do this. Mm -hmm. But um, thankfully, we've really been able to work, learn to work together with our therapist. So... So the that has increased a lot. <laughs> so when you're talking about these notes, you're talking about notes you've left yourself. Yes. Okay. I was I was just clarifying because I was like, well, your your roommate might have left a note saying you're spending too much time at the bar. You need to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh no! This was back when I was living by myself, so okay. I knew that it wasn't anybody else. Okay. Wow. <laughs> All right. I don't think there's a ghost here. I don't think a ghost can write. So. <laughs> yeah. I won't say you're having arguments with yourself, but you you are trying to tell yourself things and get... Oh, there have definitely been arguments. Absolutely. Okay. Um, in the past, it used to get very vicious. 13 used to get very abusive when she wouldn't get her way. Mm -hmm. But... Thankfully, she's been willing to work with our therapist, and she is more on board with everybody now. Mm -hmm. 
can you switch in and out or, or do you have any control of that? It depends. Sometimes there is no control Mm -hmm. whatsoever. Um, and then other times we will have a bit more control, but that's generally when we're co-conscious. So like we are aware of each other while someone is fronting, like Mm -hmm. outside using the body, I guess. And so during those times, it's easier for us to switch. But then, yeah, there are times where it's absolutely no control and it could be not happening, you know, for days at a time or, you know, sometimes we do what we call Rolodexing where it's just we're switching super, super fast and there's a bunch of us and it's, yeah, it can get crazy. Was it stressful coming on to talk to me today? So at first we were totally fangirling out. (laughs) Um, Then we were super excited to have a platform to, you know, talk about DID and hopefully dispel some misinformation out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then actually this morning we started getting a little nervous and um, one of our little altars um, came out for, I think probably maybe an hour, an hour and a half. And she spent some time, you know, reading her books and doing her stuff. And that was definitely because we were nervous. You know, that was a switch that we had no control over. Um, But, you know, as it came closer to the time, we switched back because we knew we needed to be in a state where we could communicate properly and not at a young level. (laughs) Yeah. But you settled yourself this morning. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious because a lot of people do get very nervous when they talk to me and, and I try to tell everybody I'm, I'm just a normal person and, (laughs) (laughs) and we're just friends having coffee and and a conversation, you know, like it's nothing big deal about it. But, uh, uh, one guy I spoke to, he, he had a panic attack before we had our, our our conversation and I felt horrible, even though it's not my fault, but I I still felt bad (laughs) and, um, no, no, we, um, actually someone that's here with me right now, Amelia, mm-hmm. um, in high school, we were absolute nerds. Like it hurts so bad to look back on. So we were in, we were actually the captain of the debate team for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And we were, um, we placed, uh, first in a speech competition and, We've been doing, um, not Amelia, but others have been doing like theater since we were really young. So mm-hmm. public speaking doesn't really freak us out too much. <laughs> I was a, a thespian in high school. Oh, ah. yeah. <laughs> I guess we're we're all nerds. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I also role played D and D and Vampire the Masquerade and <laughs> all those. Ah. Yeah, all those nerdy things. I was walking through um, a park in my city and I came across some role players. And I think I freaked them out as much as they freaked me out. (laughs) Were they LARPing? Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) I couldn't remember the word, but yes. Yes. (laughs) 
I I would make fun of LARPers. Uh, I don't know why I felt like I was any better than they were being in my buddy's, you know, little basement with his Warhammer table and us acting like we're vampires. But if you do it out in a park, then you're lame. I don't, <laughs> yeah, totally. There's no room for elitism, you know, when you're doing that. Yeah. So how many, I guess, personalities do you think you have? Um, we don't know, to put it shortly. Mm-hmm. I guess the easiest way to answer that is that so we have what we call inside and so it's like when you're not fronting um I don't want to use the word imagining um but it's like a space that feels very real um and we have houses we have mountains we have forests like mm-hmm. um and it's where, you know, they go when they're not close to the front or fronting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have layers. So it's not just, I guess, one inside. We have many, many layers with different types of altars on different levels. And we don't have access to all of the levels, so it's really hard to say. Um, I would say we are at 60 named, Uh, but that being said, that was after three years of working with the therapist, and yeah, it's... I don't know what the end number is going to be or if there's going to be an end number. I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. But going back to your, your, uh, I forgot the term exactly, but the poly fragmented. Yes, and, exactly. And you have altars or others that have their own systems. Yeah. And you have, so it's not all, they're not all, I don't want to say equal, but they're, you have different levels there. I, I, I kind of get it. I guess when the matrix movie came out, I totally got it. I had no problem grasping this alternative reality. Whereas a lot of people were like, that was kind of weird. And I'm like, why? <laughs> that was just <laughs> yeah. normal. Um, I, I just, I guess being a sci-fi nerd, I never, it, it makes sense to me. And, and what you just explained to me with you have this mountainous region. I'm like, well, you have a holodeck like on Star Trek where, <laughs> where you can, it's not, you know, it's not real, but it's a place where you can go and yeah. take time off, <laughs> do whatever, I guess, uh, because you don't have interactions with everybody all at the same time. You, you have the people that you're very close to that, you know, on a regular basis, but then there's others that not so much, they're more stranger to you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Like, there are altars that I know that I haven't spoken to in years. It's just a matter of how frequent they like fronting and, you know, when we meet up kind of thing. When you go to your therapist, what kind of treatment are they giving you? What is a, I guess, typical session Okay, for us, we have what's called disorganized attachment. I'm not sure if you've heard of the strange situation. 
by um, uh, Mary Ainsworth, where they took infants 12 months to 24 months, and they brought them into a room with their parents, and then the parent would leave for a designated amount of time, and then come back, and they would observe how the infant reacted when the parent came back. At the time, they found three types of attachment, which were secure. So um, when the mother came back, the child was exploring the room. They noticed that their mother came back, and then they still felt comfortable exploring. Mm -hmm. Um, Anxious would be as soon as the parent got back, they were very clingy. They needed to get as close as possible because they were distressed when the parent was gone. And then avoidant would be the parent would come in and they wouldn't even notice. They Or they would pretend they didn't notice and just keep doing whatever they were doing. Hmm. From that research, um, we've come to find out that there's actually a fourth type, um, which is called disorganized attachment. And that's when the caregiver is so inconsistent with meeting your needs. Sometimes they're comforting and sometimes they're scary. And you're not able to integrate those two different types of person at that age. Like you you can't figure out how one person can be those two different ways. And so you end up with disorganized attachment where you're constantly just stuck between anxious and avoidant. Mm-hmm. Realistically, in my life, that plays out um, as if I don't see a person for a certain amount of time, I kind of forget how real they are. It's it's really hard for me to attach after a time away. Mm-hmm. So depending on, you know, the time that I last saw my therapist, you know, sometimes the entire session is us just trying to, you know, rebuild that connection. Um, Whereas if we're seeing each other frequently, it can take five minutes. And so like, say it took five minutes, um, then we'd probably talk for 15 minutes about what's going on recently, like what's been happening. She is very good about spontaneous switches and meeting us where we are. Sometimes there are people who want to talk to her, so there's kind of like a cue. There can be arguments about who gets time at the therapist's. You know, the children are very... They want someone to talk to because they're hurt and, you know, they've never had the experience to talk to someone like I am right now, you know, because we know that that would present as weird. And so our, it just, we automatically stop that from happening. So they get really excited that they have someone to talk to. But they, they know who to, who to talk, who to put forward to talk because any other way would, might come out odd and they understand how they are portraying themselves. Yeah, and it's definitely a degree of, um, like, safety management. Mm -hmm. Like, it just wouldn't be safe for us to be walking downtown and, you know, only a six-year-old is in control of what 
what's going on, you know, yeah. that would be dangerous. And so, um, it's almost as though the system is self protecting in that we know if we're walking downtown late at night, 13 is going to be out because she's going to be the one to, if anyone tries to mess with us, she will figure that out. <laughs> she, she has the street smarts. She knows what to do and who yeah. to avoid. Yeah. Exactly. So I guess knowing that, going back to my other question of have you ever been put in harm's way when you don't remember something? Well, you're like, well, no, because they wouldn't do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, We're very fortunate in that our system does work that way. Um, There are definitely other people with DID or OSDD who that happens to absolutely and they can get very hurt and it it's a scary idea and i'm very thankful that we have the cooperation that we do to keep ourselves safe Mm -hmm. do you ever feel that you don't want one of these altars oh totally (laughs) yeah it's it's like having a sibling Uh like we love each other but we can absolutely hate each other mm-hmm. and with the majority of us being identifying as female it can get catty <laughs> <laughs> you said it not me <laughs> yeah no it absolutely arguments happen frequently um you know what we're gonna wear how we're gonna do our makeup you know that's a big deal mm-hmm. um what we take in our purse that's a big deal. There's always fights over that mm-hmm. because you can never have a big enough purse to carry three stuffed animals in. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's ordinary things that, you know, most people wouldn't really think about where we get stuck the most, like choosing, you know, what we want for breakfast. Mm-hmm. It's like, are we going to let the six year old have ice cream? Are we going to, you know, <laughs> let, Betty Crocker make pancakes? Are we going to, you know, yeah, those things trip us up. <laughs> do, do some of you have talents that other ones don't? Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously uh, somebody could cook pancakes and somebody else can't. I mean, that's, that's a talent, but are any other more, I guess? Uh... Um, yeah. I mean, some of us are involved in, well, used to be involved in acting, um, in theater. Honestly, we probably wouldn't have been able to do today without Amelia. So she has a talent for speaking up for us, I guess. There are definitely, you know, alters who are younger who can't spell correctly. And so they do their best or... You know, you'll find a note and the R is backwards or whatever. I'm trying to think of any actual talents we have. <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, um, yeah, everything's, you know, meaningful, really. But <laughs> Yeah. Um, I sing. I guess nobody else sings. Um, yeah. I won't claim to sing well. But <laughs> actually, I get this used against me. When someone else wants me to front and I don't necessarily want to, They'll put on the um, Les Miserables uh-huh. album, and then I automatically come out because those are my jams. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I, I just read about uh, Herschel Walker, the yes. the yeah. football player running back, um, and he hadn't realized that he had DID most of his life, and then I guess he wrote a book where he didn't even remember go getting into football, and then he was yeah. in football, and, and then he didn't even remember getting his his trophy. <laughs> oh yeah, like we have. Um a very diverse set of interests because mm -hmm. of everybody's different interests. Mm -hmm. Like we have um, Robin and she just loves running. That's all she did. I don't think she's ever done anything except for go for runs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it can be very fragmented in that way, I guess. Again, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to figure it out of how how you get through your day and having to manage this. But you appear to manage your day better than I do. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, I mean, we are on disability because we can't hold a full-time job. Our PTSD triggers get in the way. Honestly, routine has been a huge struggle in our life because we've never had it. And we're still trying to build routine into our day. You know, even the simple stuff like getting up, brushing your teeth, making a cup of coffee. I will admit to my bad habit, going to have a smoke, you know. Mm -hmm. We're still trying to build routines and it takes a lot of effort. Um where we can lose time so frequently. Um, it gets in the way of a lot of stuff. Like if I say, you know, I plan out this chunk of time to do X chore and then, you know, a five-year-old comes out, well, they're not going to be able to do that chore. Mm -hmm. And so I'm left, you know, trying to fit it in when the next day I have therapy. Yeah. It can be very chaotic. Mm -hmm. Uh, should I even ask if dating is a, a, a thing? <laughs> um, at this point, no. Okay. Um, but I think we are ready. Uh -huh. But we live in a very small, small city. and Slim pickings. <laughs> yeah, especially within the gay community. So, yeah, we pretty much met everyone there is to meet and... Well, but I'm sure that the, the small community you live in, people know each other. I'm sure there's some support there for you for, for living there. And that, that matters, right? Yes, absolutely. I um, am very thankful that I am very picky about my friends and who I let into my life. You know, the friends that I've had are the friends that end up sticking around for years and they're my family yeah. and I have a lot of good people in my life who are very much helping me to stay grounded and to stay on the right track. I, I think that's the most important thing. Uh, I know what everyone really needs is that support structure is a friend, yeah, um, somebody that they can lean on when they need it and that goes a long way. <laughs> um, Actually, um, yeah, we used to have a service dog and she was amazing. She helped us 
functioned so much better. Unfortunately, she passed away recently, but um, some people would say it's just a dog, but... Oh, no. <laughs> Not me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you live, you know, 24-7 with an animal, you know, there's a very big attachment there. And it's a creature that has really unconditional love for you. Oh, uh, totally. I mean, yeah. the, the joke that I, I hear is, you know, put your wife and your dog in the trunk of your car for an hour and then open the trunk and see which one's happy to see you. <laughs> and, oh, my God. And, you know, and the dog's going to be happy to see you <laughs> no matter yeah. what. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm almost to the point now where I'm, I, I tell my wife, I'm like, I don't know if I want any more dogs because when we lose them, it's, I, I have to go through a, a grief, you know, period. Like I am not good with that. And, and I get very attached to every single one to the point where I, I don't, I love them all. And that's why I don't want another dog because I can't go through the loss of them over and over and over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people, they live, you know, usually decades, whereas a dog lives on average 10 years maybe 13 they're too good for us really <laughs> yeah when you said i had a service dog i'm like of course you did why why wouldn't you that's the best solution to me not solution but just a uh, factor something to help you and help you cope that's what helps me all the time is i might be really down i might be having a horrible day and i'll come home and the dog doesn't give a shit about my day he just wants Lovins. <laughs> and exactly. And I will say that, unfortunately, as much as I have tried and as many government appointments I have argued through, I pay for my therapist out of my pocket. My service dog, I trained her myself. You know, the wait lists are six years. And, you know, I, I'm very proactive in that. Yeah, even though Canada is technically healthcare is free, it there are a lot of expenses. I can only imagine though if you lived in America. Oh God! Oh. <laughs> Don't want to yeah. bring up a can of worms, but I mean, I have multiple friends and family members who suffer greatly, and if I'm not supporting them. If my other family members aren't supporting them, there's nobody supporting them and they're homeless. Yeah, I can't even imagine that. I mean, yeah, I've, I've been to the psych ward too many times to imagine the massive debt that I would be in if I lived in another country. Yeah. What other questions have I not asked you that you wanted to talk about today? <laughs> I guess maybe get some myths out there busted. Let's do that. Um, That's yeah. How did I miss that? <laughs> <laughs> so I think the biggest myth is that if someone has DID, they're like a unicorn, like a special snowflake that's never existed. Like it's so rare. And that's actually absolutely, pardon my French, bullshit. Mm -hmm. Studies say that in the general population, it is. 1.5%. Um, and that's according to the DSM-5. And in clinical populations, so say a psych ward, it can be up to 3%. And so to give a comparison, 1% of the general population is schizophrenic, 
1% of the general population is, um, has red hair. So when you think about that, it isn't as rare as people think that it is. No, no. Um, I mean, we don't think redheads are, I mean, they're, they're not as common, but they're not, no offense, redheads. You're not that special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, funnily enough, my roommate's a redhead, so. <laughs> <laughs> she can't listen to this episode. She'll hate me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that brings me to another statistic that I have. Um, only 5 to 6% of people with DID have what's called florid expressions. So people think that if someone had DID, they would know it, like if they knew someone. But the nature of the disorder is to stay hidden. And it's only in 5 to 6% of the population where you would be able to even notice. But, I mean, you might think it's bipolar. You might think, you know, a myriad of other disorders. Interesting. And that goes back to some of the things you said earlier about or, you know, knowing before you knew, but you're hiding it and that's just the nature of it. So, yeah. Okay. People also think that, you know, we talk Sybil, that before Sybil, DID didn't exist. And that is, again, bullshit. Um, The first ever case actually was documented in 1584. 1584? 1584. And the reference for that is Vanderhart. They are one of the most respected DID researchers in the field. The name of the person, I haven't been able to figure out if it's French or English. So it's either Jean Ferry or Jean Ferré. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. People can go Google it and they can figure it out. But what, (laughs) I guess what, uh, that was the first document, documented case of, okay. And this is my personal opinion. I don't have any, you know, statistics or research to back me up on this, but personally, I believe that a lot of cases where the church called you're possessed, I think in a lot of cases that those were actually people with DID. Or just some sort of disorder, whatever it may be. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah. and then there's other cases where they just wanted to kill that person, so they just called them a witch and did it. So <laughs> Right. If you if you drowned then you were telling the truth. Yeah. You know. But if you there's a, uh, a Netflix documentary out there called Witches, and it's very interesting. It goes back to the, the witch hunt trials, but mm-hmm. not, not the Salem ones, the ones from Europe. Bef- oh, the, yeah. the OG ones. Yes. <laughs> it turned into really a political witch hunt, and yeah. it was terrifying. Uh, so I mentioned Sybil. Uh, is I'm assuming you saw the movie or read the book at some point? Yes, I did both, yeah. What's wrong with that movie? <laughs> Shortly everything, <laughs> but absolutely the patient-therapist relationship. Mm-hmm. That was a total violation of any and all professional boundaries ever. The fact that they got a third person to come in and do a biography about someone that mentally unstable violates all sorts of 
you know, professional boundaries. Her, like I said, her florid expression, like you could easily see when she was switching in the movie. Mm-hmm. That is incredibly uncommon. One thing I will hand to Sybil is that the abuse portrayed, I would not say it's common, but I would not say it's uncommon either. That is um, absolutely at the level of abuse that would cause DID. It's a high-level traumatic experience that most people, not all, but most, will have to go through before it gets to this level of coping. Mm-hmm. Well, um, a lot of people actually hold the belief that, you know, there's a core personality, and then if there's a trauma, someone splits off. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a very outdated theory. So the current theory is called um, structural dissociation. And so the theory states that up until the age of around six years old, everyone has different personality states. Like the part of you that, you know, really silly, the part of you that goes to school, the part of you that you know, spends time with your mother when you're by yourself, the part of you that spends time with your father when you're by yourself, or with both parents, you know, you act a certain way when you're in different situations. And it's at around age six that those self-states integrate. So what causes DID is if a trauma, and I want to get this clear, um, it doesn't have to be abuse, it can be trauma like living in a war zone or natural disasters or things like that. So if a trauma occurs um, between the ages of six to nine, when they believe this integration period happens, then it will disrupt the integration and it won't happen. It's a developmental milestone that once you miss, you can't get it back. And had you heard the theory that, and I I think this one's, pretty much debunked, but that DID was, uh, the therapist caused yes. it. Yeah. <laughs> like they're the ones that taught you to compartmentalize this trauma or this whatever. And then you form a, a personality or an altar around that. That's actually, there is a word for that. That's called iatrogenic, uh, DID. And it does happen. Sometimes there are shitty therapists out there it's really harmful to the people that develop that because it's not what they have. It's unethical therapists not treating people correctly. Um, But I do want to emphasize that the majority of people with DID, that's not the case. Iatrogenic DID is uncommon as opposed to actual DID. I didn't even know if that was a real thing or not. Yeah. I mean, if the patient is vulnerable enough, Yeah. Or sometimes it happens not necessarily that the therapist is in the wrong. It's that the client already believes they have DID where they don't, but they believe it so much that the symptoms are kind of showing. Dr. Marlene Steinberg, um, she is amazing. I read her book called um, The Stranger in the Mirror, Dissociation, the Hidden Epidemic. And in 1994, she relayed the um, SCIDD, 
which is the Structured Clinical Interview for Dissociative Disorders. And that test is able to pick out either iatrogenic clients or um, clients who are just straight up malingering, like pretending they have it knowingly. So there are tests to ensure that, you know, these people get screened and they don't get a diagnosis. What other myths do we have here that stick out to you? I guess a lot of people think that um, DID is like only an American thing, which is really funny to me, actually, because as someone who keeps up with the research, um, the most cutting edge research is coming from Europe the UK, the Netherlands, Switzerland, they are all years ahead of us in terms of the treatment and the knowledge about dissociative disorders. I think it's an ego thing that we we just think <laughs> that the world revolves around us and because we're not the best at addressing mental illness, we just assume that we have all of it compacted into our country. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean... Honestly, in Canada, I don't think the general population even thinks about it. I get more, what's that, than you're faking or, you know, something like that. Here, though, they, DID is not the term. People will refer to it as multiple personalities. Oh, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just, I, I'm not saying that's how I refer to it. I'm saying that's the, what people associate with. That's the yeah. commonplace term. Yeah. Yeah, and actually that is a great point because um, multiple personality disorder was changed to DID in 1994 mm-hmm. with the release of the DSM-4. Mm-hmm. And so there's two main reasons why they did that. They did it because of mischaracterization. So, you know, Sybil contributed to that. Satanic Panic contributed to that. So people not understanding Mm-hmm. what it really is. But most importantly, they changed it because it's not a personality disorder. It is a dissociative disorder. And they were able to create a new category, thankfully, because it's not a personality disorder. You know, I know people with bipolar or, or sorry, borderline, or I, you know, narcissists, and we don't got the same thing going on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And that's why I wanted to bring that up because I knew it had changed a long time ago. And that was, you know, it's like, we don't, you know, we say PTSD now, we don't say shell shock. (laughs) We don't. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of those pet peeves of mine that people call it MPD. I think honestly, the only people who can call it that were people who were diagnosed before 1994. Anyone else I want to punch in the throat. Yeah. Well, and, and anyone else, is, it's mostly Hollywood that does that. So, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Uh, where where guns can shoot endless bullets and people can go through withdrawal in a day. <laughs> it's just, I don't, I, it's really hard for me to go to the movies and enjoy them anymore. <laughs> I felt that way about, uh, about horror for past couple of years. It's sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's only been a few decent movies out that I've seen. Um, I'm trying to even think of them now. Uh, the one that was on Netflix, uh, The Babadook. That one was okay. I like that one. 
I love how that's become a gay icon. Have you seen that? No. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Go check your memes, Justin. Oh, my gosh. I am a shook. I'll definitely check that out. I had no idea. I'm I'm uh, I'm a little older, so I'm not quite as hip in the in the know anymore. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, actually, you brought up Netflix. I'm not sure about you know Netflix US or whatever, mm-hmm. but in Canada, they just released a documentary called "The Woman with Seven Personalities," mm-hmm. and so of course I had to watch it. Yeah, and <laughs> as someone with DID. I know what dissociation looks like. I know, I don't want to say that, you know, I can tell someone faking from someone who isn't because that's not what I'm trying to say at all. But I mean, I have no doubt in my mind that this woman legitimately has this disorder. But the documentary was done by her friend. And the intro was, you know, about how such a rare disorder it is. And she actually went as far as to seriously question in the documentary the claims of abuse that the woman was saying she she was saying these things were done to her Mm -hmm. and her friend was saying you know that's not possible that couldn't be possible oh it just really I I had to take some hours for self-care after watching that movie because I was very angry so you have issues with the movie, but how about the woman they focused on? Is is her portrayal decent? Oh, absolutely. I okay. would say it's 100% um, consistent with what I live with. I can't speak for anyone else. I guess another point that I wanted to mention, if if you're okay with getting into this side of the thing, totally. is ritual abuse. So everybody knows satanic panic. Mm-hmm. And... Absolutely, the McMartin case is disgusting, and I think the social workers and you know everyone legally involved with that should be held responsible for the lives they destroyed, mm-hmm. because there's no excuse for what happened. Yeah. But unfortunately, with the Satanic Panic, once it was over, no one believes that that type of abuse actually happens anymore. And that's actually a huge misconception. I was virtually abused as a child, mm-hmm. and that is a very large contributing factor in us having DID, is the ritual abuse. Was this from your, your parents and other people? So it started when we were three, and this was just my mother. She... As colorful of a person as she is, she is incredibly intelligent Mm -hmm. and she studied psychology and um, she was doing experiments at the university, Um, very benign experiments, but at the time she characterized them as much scarier. At first it was just her. And then um, it actually happened a second time with one of her boyfriend's sons. He, um, I guess, was really into metal and he fancied himself a Satanist. And yeah, there was abuse that happened. Um, I absolutely believe that he did not believe a word of it, but he knew it would scare me. Mm -hmm. So... 
and that's that's the thing. And I'm I'm glad you said fancied himself a Satanist because I have friends of all backgrounds. And, oh yeah. <laughs> and I don't care what religion you say you are. There's yeah. all types within that religion, and weirdly enough, most of the what I would consider actual quote unquote Satanists I've met in my life are some of the kindest people I know. <laughs> yeah, me too. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, we ourselves have an entire sub system of, um, pagans, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what they've characterized themselves as maybe Wiccans. I'm not sure. So yeah, no hate in there. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But there are extremists in every group, and mm -hmm. unfortunately, abusers know that certain types of abuse aren't going to be believed, and so they take advantage of that. Yeah. There's been a few cases just here in uh, the Kansas City area where uh, children have been just ritually abused by the family for yeah. for months, for years, and... You know, they were Christians, but does that, I, I don't exactly associate the religion with the abuser. I just associate with the acts of the people and how they will organize to do it. And, and yeah. that definitely is real and sucks when a satanic panic, which I'm like, that's not real, but I am very open to ritualistic abuse being a thing. And your mother is figuring out experiments with you yeah so it started um like i said when we were three um it was every night at bedtime she would come and tuck us in and she would um essentially hypnotize us and you know tell us we were at a warm sunny beach or whatever eventually that led to her within the meditation or hypnosis or whatever she was doing, she told us to get in the water and drown, essentially. So at a very young age, in our own mind, we died. Which, I mean, obviously, as an adult, you know, I, I can wrap my head around that and know that obviously we didn't. But yeah. as a small child, you know, we didn't have the ability just to discern real from fake and then from that point on um she began getting us to create a white room and at first it was just all white and then she would go through different colors she would tell us what each color was going to be so for example 13 is red mm -hmm. she was supposed to be like my mother but she turned out to have a conscience. Yeah. So it's it's pretty crazy stuff, I know. So it's not just a verbal abuse of you're worthless. It's actual planned abuse. I mean, because there's no other word for it besides abuse. That's not a it's it's unneeded. It's not therapy you you, you needed. It's it's a directed I don't know what, what, what you really call it, but it's a directed abuse that's uh, screwing you up. Yeah. She, I mean, she was essentially trying to mind control us. Like I said, she is 
absolutely insane. But unfortunately, she was a smart type of insane. And she would even use, like, make jokes out of things. Like, I'm sure you've heard of Project Monarch. So something that triggers is a very big trigger to us. And she caused this while we were in that meditative or hypnotic state or whatever. Um, we're terrified of monarch butterflies. So it was essentially planting a joke in our mind, a sick joke. But She brings you into a hypnotic state, yeah. tells you this is something that you should fear. And now when you're in a regular state, when you're in your regular mode, that thing that she in your subconscious has told you this is bad is now going to literally trigger anxiety, trigger a reaction out of you. And you don't even know why you're reacting or responding that way. Yep. Uh, like the, the old movie, the Manchurian candidate. I never truly believed in a, Oh, a sleeper agent who can be uh, activated at a, at a whim. But I, I absolutely do believe like, and you can get somebody to respond different ways, pushing their subconscious buttons. Now, can you get them to pull out a gun and shoot the president? Probably not, but you absolutely can brainwash somebody in, an, in, in more milder forms. Again, Hollywood takes that and <laughs> runs with it and misportrays what I think brainwashing is, is actually doing. And, and brainwashing can come in very different forms. I mean, I was in the military. There's a form of brainwashing in the military. Uh, yeah. You're part of a, a cultural tribe. <laughs> I would yeah, you have that group mentality. Yeah. And then there's Stockholm syndrome or, or a battered woman syndrome where you don't want to leave the abuser and, mm. and where you don't accept that you're in this situ this bad situation and that's isn't that a form of brainwashing you know um, well actually um that would be a type of attachment mm -hmm. that you've um developed with your abuser so like some people will develop you know stockholm syndrome but others you know they will absolutely be avoidant in their relationship and mm -hmm. You know, they will hate that motherfucker and yeah. they will feel that way forever. I, I guess I, I've just spoken to so many people where their their abusive significant other will slowly alienate them from their friends and family, slowly, oh, slowly break down their self-esteem. And I see that as a form of brainwashing because you're con that person's controlling you with abuse. Yeah. So I wasn't clear. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess another probably more insane sounding thing that happened, um, was when we got to be older, for some reason, our mother tried to get us to like model. She tried to teach us how to model, which we had absolutely zero interest in. in and we we're like, what the? fuck like <laughs> why you want us to walk a certain way like what and then there was also a different period in my life where she trained us to fight 
And that was, again, another um, subsystem. And they are, they, they know how to fight. And um, they also are able to use guns. And I mean, I would have no idea what to do with the gun if someone were to put it in my hands. But I know that part of me knows what to do. It's pretty crazy to think of what must have been going through her mind, yeah. you know. That is ritualistic abuse that you've you've really shed the light on it. Uh, I know Aaron and I just covered the, the DC sniper case and mm-hmm. that the, the kid, I'm just going to call him a kid involved, he was under the the guise of this this older gentleman who was telling him these lies and teaching him and training him how to kill and and how yeah. this is a good thing and and even using the Quran to justify their actions over and over that's to me that's ritualistic abuse and he got this this kid to act out and and do these things and shoot multiple people. And I just can't even wrap my head around it. And so I guess I'm so glad you brought it up because people hear me just shit all over satanic panic. And then they think that I don't believe in any of it. And I'm like, no, no, I just, I really just take a step back when somebody invokes Satan or black magic and in the abuse that just turns me off. (laughs) So this is going on and you're you're a child. You don't know this is wrong. We we had an idea that it was wrong because of the involvement of protective services with our older siblings. We knew that something wasn't right with the way that she was abusing us. Um like if we were at school and we were to be questioned, we would have no memory of those things that she was getting us to do. Mm -hmm. And so that really worked against us um, for a long time until we were probably in middle school when we realized, no, this is really messed up. Like, this should not be happening. Do you know why your siblings were removed? Um, Yep. Both cases were due to physical violence of her against them. And my younger sibling is still at home with her. How the fuck are what? <laughs> you, you take one child out of the home or two child children out of the home. How, why would you leave the other ones? Yeah, exactly. I really, I cannot say anything good about the Department of Social Development. I really can't. They have only failed me and my family mm-hmm. over and over again. Recently had to be involved with the removal of one of my family members from their, their guardians, their birth mother. And, uh, funny enough, you know, saying there's no food in the house, saying that they would be left for weeks on end, no issue. But as soon as, as soon as we said, Oh, there's marijuana in the house, there's pot. Yep. That'll do it. (laughs) Both children removed within hours. Yep. And I'm thinking, the marijuana in the house is actually the most benign thing that this person does. And how the hell are, is that justifiable to remove children from the home, but leaving your children home alone for eight days straight without food? 
that's fine. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, I, I actually, I remember being young and I remember thinking, wishing that she was an alcoholic or a drug addict so yeah. that they would take me away because I knew that they, you know, they had that mentality. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I knew at that age, but yeah. You probably talked to other kids that confirmed this. <laughs> it's just, it, it's insane to me that you were left there even after your older siblings were removed and that your younger sibling is still there. That's even more insane. Have you spoken to her or him? (laughs) I don't have a relationship with them because for my 16th birthday, um, I was living with another sibling and I said, the only thing I want for my birthday is to see my little, my younger sibling Mm -hmm. tentatively, my mother let this happen, but he told me that he was being abused. And so I contacted social services that got back to my mother. And all of a sudden, I am a horrible influence on my younger sibling. And I'm not allowed to contact them because I am a terrible influence. That's what's happening to me right now. Yeah. Mm. I'm so sorry. It's such a shit situation. Yeah. But luckily, they were removed, so I can have a relationship with them. But the parent uh, is telling all the rest of the family lies and spreading rumors and painting me and others in a very bad light because that's just the way they lash out. It only pisses me off when the other family members start calling and questioning me, and I think, I'm the guy that... Yeah, I'm not the person you should be questioning here. <laughs> yeah, like you're listening to the crackhead and you're yeah. you're questioning me. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely wanted to bring up that I'm part of the uh, no contact with my mother club. <laughs> and when I heard about that club, I was so excited. <laughs> I, I, I've gotten a lot of people that that's the first thing they say to me. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm part of the I don't talk to my parents club, too. I'm like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> we, need, we need to have like a friends giving together sometime when we all just <laughs> no family. Oh my god, that's adorable! <laughs> I love it. I might have to do that because it's just it's ridiculous. And I had no idea that when I covered that and um, she told her story, I I was like, I don't know if anyone's going to even relate to this. I'm like, I'm relating to it because I'm right there with her, and and I, but I'm thinking, you know, no one else will care. That's been like one of my highest downloaded episodes. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah, totally. I never know what people are going to resonate with. <laughs> Actually, it's amazing to have the opportunity to speak to you because um, I was in the hospital um, after a suicide attempt and when I found your show. Aww. And I used to sneak out on my smoke breaks I'd sneak my phone out because we weren't technically allowed to have phones Mm -hmm. and I'd download your episode you and Aaron and I would be able to pretend it was an iPod when I was on the psych ward but Mm -hmm. you know actually be able to listen to you guys and you got me through a very very hard period in my life so thank you to both you and Aaron (laughs) thank you that's um Sorry, I'm. You're choking me up. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you're fine.